Let me begin with a question to you, and the question is, why are you here? By that I mean, why do you exist? Why do you live? Why do you draw every breath? Why are you here? There are many different ways that people go on about answering this question, but we look to the Bible to answer that question, why are you here? And what Scripture tells us is that God created, created us to worship Him. That's why we are here. That's why we exist. We exist, we live, we draw every breath in order to worship God. And because of that, because the reason we exist is to praise and worship God, it is actually not possible to understand what it means to flourish as human beings apart from our created purpose. If you do not know, if you are rebelling against the reason for which you exist, there is no flourishing, there is no fulfillment. Worship is the reason we live. And if worship is so important as it is, the question is, how do we worship? Where does worship come from? Where, what sustains worship? Have you ever tried to start a campfire going? In order to get a fire going, you need two things, don't you? You need a source of ignition, and you need combustible fuel. Worship is very similar in that worship is ignited by the gospel and it is fueled and sustained by the gospel. What gets us started is also what carries us to the end. So we flourish as human beings as we return constantly to the fuel that sustains the flame of the Christian life. And this morning, I would like to focus our studies along three uh, points. And the first, the field that sustains the flame of the Christian life is, first of all, the word of the truth. The word of the truth. Now, you may have uh, noted that throughout verses 3, to 10 in this long introduction, did you notice how Paul consistently uses the pronouns we, our, us? These are the words that he consistently uses, we, our, us. And what that tells us at the most basic level is that Paul sees himself as one who needs the gospel as much as his hearers and his readers. There is not one gospel for himself and another gospel for Christians. But for Paul, it's always we, us, our Savior, our God. So Paul, first of all, sees himself in the same place as the rest of the believers. He is a sinner saved by grace as much as the Ephesians are. And it also means something more. It also means that in Paul's mind and in his heart, he understands so clearly that the Jews and the Gentiles, you know, Paul is writing to a largely Gentile church in Ephesus. Uh, 
And so there is no doubt and question in Paul's mind, and he sees this so clearly that the Jews and the Gentiles are equally privileged with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through the same gospel. That's why Paul keeps using we, our, and us. And then you may have noticed in verses 11 and 12, Paul for the first time uses the word we to mean the Jews. When he says in verse 11, we who were the first to hope in Christ. So by the word we, he means the Jewish people. And then he follows that up in verse 13 with, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And I think it's obvious to see that Paul is not walking back the glorious gospel of one Savior, one gospel for the Jews and the Gentiles. But rather, Paul's argument is something like this. He is arguing, we, the Jews, we, the Jews, believe to the praise of his glory, verse 12. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul goes on to say, you, the Gentiles, heard and believed to the praise of his glory, verse 14. So do you see what Paul is saying? We, the Jews, we believed. Why? To the praise of God's glory. You, the Gentiles, you believed. Why? To the praise of his glory. And so Paul is saying that the Gentiles heard and believed, and they were sealed with the promised spirit. And then Paul comes back to the same the uh, first-person plural pronoun. You were sealed with the promised spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, there's something important going on here that is easy to miss and sometimes has become a point of contention in the Christian churches where people see the Jews and the Gentiles not as one body in Christ, but they make a distinction between them as Christians. But there is one gospel. There's one spiritual blessing. And what the Jewish people long for as God's promise, the promised spirit, it is now the inheritance and the gift and the blessing given to the Gentiles. In Jesus Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. That's where you may have begun. But in Jesus, you become one. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Now, what's the point? Now, remember once again that in the Old Testament, God only called the people of Israel as his inheritance and as his treasure possession. So only the physical descendants of Abraham, only the ethnic people of Israel were considered God's possession. But now, now every believer united to Jesus is now given to the Lord Jesus as his inheritance and as his treasured possession, whether Jew or Gentile. Faith in Jesus imparts a great honor and distinction. It's mind-boggling, really. You pass by so many strangers every day on the streets and in the stores, and they look at you, they think nothing of you. They don't notice you. They don't know who you are. 
but you are to Jesus his inheritance. You are to Jesus his treasured possession. It has nothing to do with your income. It has nothing to do with your job. It has nothing to do with your education. It has nothing to do with where you live. You are to Jesus his inheritance and his treasured possession. Do you see what honor, what distinction we receive through faith in Jesus Christ? And Paul tells us here that this happens in no other way than when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. If you want to get a good, can I put it this way? If you want to get a good Cliff Notes version of world history, if you want to get a good Cliff Notes version, actually, I'm not even sure if the young people even know what Cliff Notes are. <laughs> if you want to get a really quick overview of world history, Psalm 2 is the place you go to. Psalm 2. You know, there you read the proud rebellion of sinners against God and his anointed one saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, this is a world that is constantly tempting us and telling us to doubt the truthfulness of God's word. This is a world that is constantly demanding that we deny what the gospel is alone uniquely able to accomplish, which is our salvation. And the world tempts us and demands that we, we doubt God's word and, and turn back uh, against the gospel, often in the name of human flourishing. We cannot really be fulfilled as human beings unless we throw off the uh, restraint or cast off the restraint of God. But what both Paul and what Psalm 2 and the rest of the scriptures tell us is that we are actually deprived of the dignity of our created purpose. And we are actually dehumanized without the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We don't flourish as human beings without God's word and without the gospel. Because God created us to be his worshipers. When we rebel against the very things for which we exist, the outcome is not greater freedom, it's not greater honor, but we become dehumanized. And we lose the dignity of what we were created to be. So that's the word of the truth. That's why we need to keep returning to the word of truth. And secondly, the seal of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit. Now, Paul tells us here that hearing the word of truth and believing the gospel of your salvation are the instruments that God uses for the incredible blessing of being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Um, In the ancient world, the seal... It was a little device with imprints on it. And there were various ways that imprints were made. Sometimes and often, the imprints on a seal were etched by acid. 
Um, because of the unique way that acid uh, erodes the surface, no seal, no two seals were the same. Um, every seal was distinct. And so to be sealed, uh, had, it served the function of proving the authenticity of something. If you are sealed with something, it's the mark of authenticity. It guarantees that this is the genuine article. And to put a seal on something was also uh, claiming ownership on something. And so when Paul tells us here that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, he, uh, he's keeping those two things in mind. Remember, the Father has gifted you, the believers, to his son as his inheritance. And the Spirit then seals the believers with both the mark of authenticity and the mark of ownership. The Holy Spirit is the seal that God has put upon believers to bear witness that we are truly of the Lord's and we truly do belong to Jesus. That is the seal of the Holy Spirit. And that is why Paul says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee, uh, it's interesting. Um, that Greek word a guarantee, uh, today the Greek people use it for engagement ring. Um, now, it's uncertain whether that's what, what the word meant 2,000 years ago, but it's interesting because words tend not to drift too far from their meanings. So the Greek people today use the word guarantee as an engagement ring. It's a pledge of promise. Uh, more importantly, the word meant 2,000 uh, years ago something like a down payment, a down payment. Uh, what's a down payment? You know, you've all bought expensive things, haven't you? You've all bought cars. You've all bought um, houses. So what do you do? You uh, put up an initial sum as a pledge uh, that you are going to meet all your obligations and pay the remaining sum. And the down payment that you put up counts toward your entire obligation. And that's in that sense that Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, I'd like to pause a moment here and ask you this question. What can we learn here about the Father's giving heart? Think about what Paul has said and told us in these verses. Paul told us that the Father has given his Son as redemption payment. And then Paul tells us that the Father gives us his Spirit as a down payment of our glory to come. So knowing that, let me ask you again, what can you learn here about the Father's giving heart, the Father who gives, and when He gives, He gives His Son. He gives 
the blood and the life of His Son as redemption price for your souls. And He, as if that weren't enough, He gives His Spirit as a guarantee. Does it dawn on you something of the majestic generosity, the largeness of God's heart in which He gives And when he gives, he gives his son. He gives his spirit, sparing nothing. The most, what is most precious to him, the father gives. And I think that is something we need to see here. How large the father's heart is. How giving he is to those whom we read in verse 11 whom he predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All that is to say, God created you to worship him. Yes, that's the reason why you exist. But just as truly, God created you to lavish his love upon you. God created you to show you how endlessly unsparing His love is. These two goals are not uh, at odds. God created you that you may worship Him. You exist for His glory, but just as equally. God created you so that He may lavish upon you His Deep, unsearchable love. And I think that's something that we need to remember because, you know, the embers of our faith die unless it has the fuel to sustain it. Isn't that how fire works? It's all good and well that you have initial ignition. But without fuel to sustain the fire, the embers don't last. And the fuel that sustains the fire of our life is the Father's unwavering love. And it's unwavering because His love for you does not change with the times and it does not change with you. Ages may pass, we may get old, we change. His love does not change. It's unwavering. And His love is unfathomable. We cannot sound depth. Just as, just when you realize you've got His love figured out, He surprises you because it's deeper, it's bigger. And his love is undeserved. Undeserved because it is a gift. It is not earned. What that means is you haven't done a thing to deserve this gift. It is a free gift. And you can't not do a thing to lose out on it. It is a free gift. And so the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, um, 
the Greek phrase here translated until we acquire possession of it. It's something of a, um, a challenging phrase to translate because the phrase quite literally says unto the redemption of possession. Uh, so there is no uh, subject that is identified if you were asking the question, unto whose possession? And so uh, this is a, a tricky phrase to translate, and some opt to translate it uh, from the vantage point of the believer, and that's what we have in the ESV, until we acquire possession of it. So uh, it is a translation that is looking at this passage from the vantage point of the believer awaiting the full reception of the inheritance. And it is an understandable translation because as Paul has been speaking of we, he's been speaking of you, and he's been speaking of our inheritance. And you could certainly see why both the ESV and many other translations translate it as unto the redemption of possession, they translate that as until we acquire possession of it. But you may have noticed, those of you with an ESV, there is a footnote there. And in that ESV footnote, it, there's a different phrase and translation, until God redeems his possession. Until God redeems his possession. Now, the two are saying quite different things, isn't it? Uh, until we acquire possession on the one hand, and on the other hand, until God redeems his possession. And in my view, that makes better sense in view of the context. Uh, you remember verse 5. Paul told us that God, the Father, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So as soon as Paul began this introduction, he set the tone, didn't he? That God has claimed us for himself. And then, of course, there are the passages like Malachi 3, 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son, who serves him. So throughout scriptures, there are two different ways of understanding the gospel. On the one hand, it's the believers who come into possession of great blessings, which is gloriously true. It's gloriously beautiful. But on the other hand, the work of the gospel, redemption is described as God claiming people for himself as his inheritance and as his treasure. And I think sometimes we forget that. Our eyes become so focused on the gospel with respect to how it affects us, which is, of course, necessary and beautiful. But sometimes we forget that God's stated purpose for redemption is so that he can claim a people for himself as his inheritance. And so what Paul is getting at here, it seems to me, is that salvation springs, our salvation springs from God's purpose and predestination. And our salvation is completed in God's will 
to have a people for himself as his treasured possession. So our salvation begins with God's purpose, and it ends with God's purpose. And when our salvation begins and ends with God, there is no possibility of failure. There is no possibility of our salvation being aborted. There is no possibility of our salvation being frustrated because it begins with God's purpose and predestination, and it ends with God's purpose to have a people for himself. And that brings us to the third and the last fuel, as it were, which is the praise of his glory. Now you see here how Paul ends this great introduction uh, once again by returning to the praise of his glory. And we saw this several times throughout this introduction. And one thing that is remarkable, one thing that we cannot miss, you know, this is the sixth week in this introduction. And uh, I'm very much aware that we've only begun to scratch the surface in these six weeks. Um, And that's okay because in many ways, Paul returns to these themes throughout the the letter of Ephesians. Um, But if there's one thing that we need to recognize is that see how Paul, he does not separate the believer's mind from his heart. You know, we do that sometimes. We call doctrine head knowledge. But for Paul, doctrine is not a matter of mere intellect but it is of the heart, and it leads to worship. That's why Paul peppers this introduction, not only with profound doctrine, but for the praise of his glory. And of course, what that also means is that our worship becomes a mere caricature, and our worship becomes shallow without this great fuel of the great things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is not just the, the source of the initial spark of worship, but it is also what sustains and fans it into a blaze. God's grace fuels our worship. And that's really important because the reality is, in the many struggles of life, we often do not feel the gospel privileges and gospel promises as powerfully as we wish. Doesn't it feel like it to you how troubles seem so much nearer And every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, they feel so irrelevant and so far, so abstract in everyday life. And doesn't it feel like to you how in in our constant struggle against sin, if we ever think about the Holy Spirit, very often because we struggle constantly with sin, we are more afraid of disappointing the Spirit than we are comforted by His presence. 
And consequently, it is not praise that fills our hearts, but rather fear. It's the sense that God, and this thought creeps up into our hearts. God is not really good. And there's a bitterness that rises from our hearts. That is why we have to keep hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in Him. Christians can never outgrow the gospel, and the gospel is something that grows larger as we grow mature. And notice, loved ones, that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the Holy Spirit, and that your faith, yes, it is weak, and it struggles often, but the faith with which you return to Jesus, yes, sometimes you groan, but you also love him. And you long for him. That faith that keeps bringing you back to the Lord Jesus, that is the seal of the Holy Spirit. That is the evidence that God has given his spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. So loved ones, be comforted. Your God and your Father, He will accomplish what He has purposed. And His purpose for you is to lavish upon you love and is to lavish upon you His grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your instructions and your promises today. Lord, I pray for my, my beloved people here, your beloved children who often struggle, who are weak, and who often uh, have doubts, anxiety, and who often find that they cannot, in their own strength, cling to your gospel and your promises. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would increase in their heart the joy and the hope of Jesus Christ, that the gospel promises would be more clearer and louder than the temptations and the lies of the world, that they may remember well and joyfully the reason why you created them, for you created them to know your love and your grace. And so we pray that you would fill our hearts with praise and with worship. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.